Welcome to Slew Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. The race for a COVID-19 vaccine has captured the world's attention. Pharmaceutical companies across the globe are competing for a top spot that will pull us out of this pandemic. What does this mean for our immediate future, and what will it mean for vaccine development for years to come? I'm Jessica Sacconi, Director of Communications, joined by Professor Anna Santos-Rutchman. Anna is a member of the Center for Health Law Studies and Center for International and Comparative Law. She is an expert in FDA law and policy and vaccine patents. She has been tapped by national leaders and policymakers across the country for her expertise. Thank you for joining us today, Anna. Mm-hmm. So first, let's talk about vaccine development. In normal time, this takes years, right? So what kind of changes and what has happened to make this progress so quickly? Right. So normally, and this is not just vaccines, any drug you can think of that we have to develop basically you know, from scratch, that takes years. And when we say years, we're not thinking one, two, three, four years. We're, we're thinking you know, a decade or sometimes over a decade. It's going to be product-specific, so, you know, some drugs can be developed a little bit faster. Um, Some might take up to, you know, 14, 15, 16 years. And vaccines kind of fall on the, you know, decade-plus side of the spectrum here under normal circumstances. Um, Now, there is very little about COVID and drugs and vaccines for COVID um, that is uh, normal, and the timeline is one of um, those um, things. So we're talking about vaccines targeting infectious um, diseases here, which is a particular type of, uh, of vaccine. The pathogen is new. Um, some of the vaccines that we're developing right now rely on pre-existing technology. So that's something that we've done in previous outbreaks. Um, and, you know, from a science perspective, we're pretty good at developing vaccines just by adapting existing vaccine technology against the new pathogen. Um, you know, in the case of Zika and Ebola, for instance, the vaccine development um, process was also, you know, pretty um, quick, uh, especially during um, during those uh, outbreaks. And then it, it got a little bit um, slower, but during the outbreaks, we, we progressed pretty quickly. Um, so this is something we've done uh, with some degree of success in, in the past. So as long as we're adapting pre-existing technology, we can shorten that timeline. Uh, something that's a bit different about COVID is that we have emerging vaccine technology. So things that realistically until about 10 years ago, uh, we were not pouring as much money and resources into um, as we were into other um, areas of research and development. But in, in the U.S., uh, in, in Europe, uh, in a few other places, um, there was really big support for different types of vaccine technology. So if you've heard about Pfizer uh, and Moderna having something called an mRNA vaccine. This is a type of vaccine technology, so a way to uh, make a vaccine work um, that we didn't have uh, before. But about 10 years ago, we that became much more of a strategic priority in vaccine development. And now we were just able, because there was money, there was uh, pressure, there was a public health need, we were able to accelerate the development of a new form of vaccine technology. So we've done both. We've developed the old stuff and the new stuff very fast, faster than usual, but this is why it is scientifically possible to bring these vaccines to market as quickly um, as you're seeing them come to market. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, actually, that was one of my follow-up questions about that, are 
mRNA um, technology and vaccine development. Like that's, that's pretty exciting, right? So what, and I, you know, obviously these are pretty, these vaccines have, have been known to be, have like high rates of efficacy and of safety. So that's really good too. But like when it comes to that mRNA technology, what, you know, why is this a big deal? Like you, you started to dig into that and then like from the, law side from the patent side, what do you think this is going to mean like for the future of vaccines? Yeah, so it is a big deal first scientifically, right? Um, so we, we kind of all are accustomed to the idea that the vaccine is pretty much, you know, you get a shot, which has some version, let's call it that, of the pathogen um, that has either, you know, been killed or attenuated or something like that. So you get injected with that and your body will fight off. Um, that, you know, sort of attenuated or, or killed pathogen, and that will trigger an immune response that will protect you, uh, you know, hopefully in the long term, but at least for a period of time, right? So this is how vaccines have worked scientifically, and that's the basis of uh, vaccinology up until uh, now. So the idea that we can now develop vaccines that will not require um um, the, the shot you're getting to, you know, be putting the, a little uh, bit of the pathogen, uh, in, uh, in circulation in your body. Just, you know, what these new vaccines are doing, just basically sending a set of instructions on how to trigger that immune response, but without, um, the, the media that we used before, um, to achieve the same goal. So scientifically, this is, uh, obviously very, uh, very exciting. Uh, it has mm-hmm. also regulatory uh, implications. Um, so one of the big debates right now, um, both in, in the U.S. with regard to the FDA, but um, we saw this happen even faster in Europe with the European Medicines Agency clearing uh, one of these vaccines even before the FDA did. So from a regulatory perspective, if you think that now we've generated data about, you know, safety, uh, and the efficacy of these vaccines, which is, these are requirements that are pretty much the same all over the world. Anytime you want to bring a drug or vaccine to market and the product is new, the regulatory agencies are going to check uh, for these two things. Now, the mm-hmm. data was generated really, really quickly, right, in, in, in this particular um, vaccine uh, race. So from a regulatory perspective, if we have a whole, you know, an older type of technology, uh, we might uh, have you know we have a much better sense of what these agencies are going to be looking for, but as we've discussed, we have a different type of technology um, emerging. So th- that was from a from a regulatory slash legal perspective. That was really the first big discussion we've had. Um, there is a traditional way of approving products, drugs, and vaccines. And if there's a public health emergency, which obviously COVID uh, counts as one, there are I'll call them expedited regulatory pathways. So instead of the usual standard of review, the agency will use a lower one because as, as uh, we're witness, witnessing uh, right now, it is important from a public health perspective to, to get these vaccines uh, to people in need sooner rather than later. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what happened, what's happening in the U.S. with these new vaccines. So we have a new, um, you know, from a scientific perspective, we have something new, meaning we've never really generated data for these types of products, and yet you see the FDA using the standard that is this lower um, data threshold. So that raises a lot of questions, and people oppose the use of that pathway, uh, which is called emergency use authorization. So it's an authorization to use something that has not been fully approved, and then we'll wait on more data, and the FDA can revoke that authorization 
at any point if data don't support um, that authorization anymore. But the point is, we are bringing unapproved products to market, and we're balancing that risk with a public health need. So that that's the first one. And then there's the world of patents. You mentioned um, that um, pretty much everything that's new in in, uh, in the life right now um, can in all likelihood or I, I shouldn't say can be patented but there will be efforts to patent different components of the technology what we were seeing with older forms of vaccines is that there was still a lot that uh, we were seeing patents on so if you think of some of the more modern vaccines like HPV for instance um, they had dozens and dozens of patents they still do have dozens of patents covering um, the technology but the older vaccines against uh, infectious diseases, there's very little intellectual property, and it, it's not worth a lot to the point that poor countries are often told, you know, if you can't buy, you know, the, the most recent one, if you cannot clear the activity, just get the older one. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to be the with these emerging vaccines. So new technology means um, the likelihood that we'll see uh, a lot of patents in this area is uh is reality. Um, they are going to be valuable because we are going to develop new vaccines based on this technology. And down the road, that may create, uh, you know, the, the, it may make um, innovation by, you know, follow-on companies more expensive. It may ultimately raise the, the price of uh, vaccines targeting other diseases other than COVID. Uh, it might create some, some uncertainty for, you know, companies that want to come to market, but they know there's a lot of intellectual property to, to clear, so they might choose mm-hmm. to do something else. It's going to be a patent dense area. So I would say those are two of the main things uh, on the legal and regulatory side of things that I work on. And, there, and obviously yeah. there's a lot more on the side of things, but um, on the FDA patent side of, um, of things, those are the two big issues. Yeah, so are the um are the are they done are these patents are they gonna be done you know from a national perspective or are they gonna be different per for each country? How does that work like across across the country since this is a global pandemic and, and a lot of the diseases that we're gonna see in the future are gonna be all over the world, right? So this is so, one of those cases in yeah. yeah. The answer is probably yes and yes, they're national and they're gonna be um um, but there's a global implication. So patents, and this pandemic don't change this, patents are always um, granted on a national basis. Sort of there's, mm-hmm. there are international laws and an international um, treaty called TRIPS that regulates how domestic laws have to operate. But as long as your domestic law is compatible with the minimum standards set in TRIPS, then, you know, national jurisdictions, the legislator can, can set up the system uh at uh at will. So what we have is patent systems that look very much not the same but very, very similar to one another, but it still takes an act from the domestic uh in this case agency in the US um uh, for a patent to be awarded and it's just for that country. So US patent is valid here. Uh it's recognized here but does not produce effects in, in France. You want uh something in, in Europe, you have to go to Europe and get your patents there. And Moderna uh Pfizer, those companies, they just patent around the world. Um, so that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's always been done like that. And always, I should say, since, you know, the, the late 20th century, that's sort of the, the, the game. Um, the way you play the game, you just patent everywhere. So each mm-hmm. country will assess the validity, for instance, of a patent according to its own laws, 
but these companies that have a product with a potentially, you know, global market will have patented um, pretty much anywhere where they think they will be uh, commercializing the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And then we, the other twist to this is that we know they're doing this. We just don't exactly know what the landscape looks like because in the U.S. and most countries, there's a gap between applying for a patent and publication of the information that goes with that application. And we're still, we're squarely in that gap right now. So we don't quite know. We will not really know what's happening until, you know, a year, year and a half from now. That's when we'll be able, the information will become publicly available. So the, the PTO here will start publishing the applications and we can start looking at them. And, and we know of some things indirectly because there's been, you know, skirmishes between companies and there were patents that were looted, um, too. We, we can guess some things, but we don't really know what the patent landscape looks like and we want until these vaccines probably, you know, are already in the market. Right, right. So kind of on that, a little bit on that, um, line, you, you have talked a lot about, you know, vaccine nationalism and, and what does this, what does that exactly mean and how will, you know, that affect, and we might have kind of gotten on this, but how will it impact the distribution of the vaccine once it's ready? Um, so that's sort of a, sort of a, a gap period, um, problem. So remember, we suddenly direct a lot of resources towards vaccine R&D, which we normally do over a much more protected, um, protracted period of time, but now everything is compressed, right? When there is, you know, uh, such a demand for a public health um, good, then it's economics, one, you know, uh, 101. So if you have the money to secure a sizable amount of vaccine, uh, of potential um, vaccine doses, so we're still, you know, developing the vaccines. We don't really know uh, which ones are going to come to market uh, first. You can make an educated guess because even though the, the vaccine race had, you know, dozens and dozens, actually hundreds of candidates. You, you kind of know that pretty quickly the race is going to be uh, narrowed down to, to just a handful, which is why, for instance, Operation Warp Speed uh, in the U.S. is working with mm-hmm. less than, uh, than 10 candidates. The European Union was also uh, honing in on just also a handful of candidates. So you can make that educated guess. So if you have money, if you're a country that has money, um, you use a very simple um, contractual mechanism that you use, you know, we, it's used routinely, you know, almost every day uh, at country level and, you know, between uh, individual companies. You think somebody's going to produce something of uh, interest to you, of value, and you say, hey, you know, when this is cleared to come to market because, you know, vaccines are regulated, you can't just start selling them without the nuts from the regulator, but you say, you know, the moment you get your nuts to go to market, I will buy X. So, again, economics at its most basic uh, level, if you have the money, you place an order before um, the good is ready to be commercialized. So, it's it's a pre-purchase, a pre-production agreement or an advanced commitment. There's different names that uh, we use to call, um, to designate these these types of agreements. But basically, it's a contract, right, saying, I will buy X from you. Now, in the current uh, economy and, uh, you know, political economy, you know, that's not all countries. Most countries can't really do this, right? So it's the wealthiest countries that have been able to do this, not just during COVID. They did this in the previous pandemic, the one we tend to uh, forget about because, you know, collectively we barely noticed it, which was uh, going on 11 years now, that this one flu one. That, mm-hmm. that was the reaction. 
um, of um, of uh, the wealthiest countries. So we're talking Midwest, we're talking countries in Europe, and you know a few other places in the world. And this is problematic because you know as COVID has demonstrated, this is not a U.S. problem. This is a global um, health, public health problem. So mm-hmm. if there's a way uh, for some countries to contractually just make sure that they get an enormous amount of uh, vaccine doses. This is obviously problematic for countries that don't have the possibility of placing these advanced uh, market commitments. So that's what a lot of people have called vaccine nationalism. So you're looking at vaccines as a commodity that can be privatized across national uh, lines, right? So the U.S. buys X, uh, Austria buys X, um, and then, you know, for a country in Africa, he's left... Uh, to either tap mm-hmm. into uh, some international mechanism, we now have one that partially helps these countries, or you're going to be, you know, dead last in, in the queue uh, when vaccines are ready uh, to be distributed. So that's the problem. It's very hard to solve, um, but that's the problem of nationalism, um, and countries tend to overbuy um, vaccine mm-hmm. doses. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Um, so when it comes to, like, the U.S., how... How do you think, or how, or how do you know, the, the law is going to, to govern the, the distribution of the vaccine, and, and what does that mean for, like, you and I and the general public? So the, the U.S. Uh, has had, so the U.S. has decided to go, uh, to go at this from a purely nationalistic perspective. Some countries have done, you know, what I what I just described, they placed those orders, mm-hmm. but then they joined sort of a pooled procurement facility, uh, which was created just for COVID-19 vaccines called COVAX, and that one has a mix of um, developed countries and developing countries, so wealthier countries and not so wealthy. Um, the U.S. and uh, a handful of other countries chose not to do it. So U.S. pretty much decided we're going to have Operation Warp Speed, uh, and we are going to basically contract directly with uh, private uh, companies. Now, we heard uh, from the EU that they've cleared one of the vaccine candidates to go to market um, faster. The U.S. at the time we're recording this is poised, we think, to have one or two vaccines also uh, getting uh, authorization from the FDA to come to market pretty quickly. Um, so the, the scenario, even though we've done things a little bit um, differently, is not going to be uh, very different from what you will see uh, in Europe. So uh, there will be vaccine scarcity because um, one of the vaccines that's uh, one of these two vaccines that are sort of the leaders right now, um, mm-hmm. it's it's very hard to distribute. It's, it's hard to distribute anywhere in the world, including in a you know in a wealthy country like the U.S. or uh, Western European countries. Um, it is a super cold vaccine, so we won't have enough of it, uh, and it's going to be really really hard um, to get the vaccine to where it needs to be, particularly outside uh, urban and suburban uh, areas. So th- that is going to be just a logistical problem. We're going to face um, everywhere. Um, the other vaccine is not as problematic from a logistic perspective, but again, we, we have not manufactured as much as we we would ideally like to have, right? I mean, I, I don't want to understate the point that this is all remarkable from a scientific and technical perspective, but when you look at the number of people indicated for the vaccine, we are going to still go through a phase of um, scarcity. Right. If you're not in the, or, uh, you know, one of the European countries that has also placed a lot of these advanced writers and is high up on, on that list, you are going to wait for these vaccines even longer. 
And if you're one of those countries with, you know, a, a weaker um, public health infrastructure, um, then obviously that is going to take a toll, a further toll on your uh, on your public health. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it's a logistical, I don't know, I can't even imagine try, trying to work that out. So power be to all the people trying to figure out those problems for us right now. But as far as like when we get to the point of, you know, having enough, you know, kind of fighting off that scarcity, and we're talking now about getting a great number of people vaccinated, we're kind of battling a whole nother thing, which is the the vaccine misinformation. And especially given like the highly like politicized nature of the pandemic. Can you can you talk about what like vaccine information misinformation is and like what can be done to combat it? Oh, sure, and, and that's uh, that's a tough one as well. Um, I I would frame it perhaps in in terms of vaccine trust, to which vaccine misinformation is a huge um, a huge feeder. I I would say so. Um, mm-hmm. The the words and the the concepts we use in, in this area, I think, are sometimes a little bit misleading. We talk about trust in vaccines or lack thereof. Uh, we talk about vaccine hesitancy, and we talk about people who are pro or anti-vaccine. And uh, I'm not even sure these concepts are the right ones to explain what's going on. But basically, we've known that in recent years, um, confidence, public trust, People holding favorable um, views uh, on vaccines and vaccination has all, all of those things have started to uh, um, go down. Um, so, just to put things in perspective, many of the vaccines that you and I are now familiar with, and possibly we've uh, gotten a few of those, they were sort of developed in the mid 20th century and then perfected after that. Um, and that's sort of the same period of time in which you see a lot of vaccine preventable diseases either disappearing or you know the levels get well under uh, control. And then in recent years, just you know, last couple of years, you saw things like measles making a comeback even in the U.S. Right? We had multiple outbreaks um, across the country last year. So the WHO mm-hmm. got a report saying, "Hey, we always list you know sort of your top ten um, threats to global health. Yeah, vaccine hesitancy is now one of them." So. Hesitancy or lack of trust is this idea that if there's a vaccine available to you um, and you're indicated for it and there's no cost or no significant hurdles for you to get it. So say the FDA has approved or authorized the vaccine, which is what we expect with um, COVID-19, and you don't have to buy a dime and you're now indicated to get the vaccine. So it's available to you, but you either decide to wait a little bit longer because you kind of want to see how your friends and neighbors are doing after getting the vaccine, so you delay mm-hmm. uh, vaccinate what's recommended, or you say, I don't trust it, I'm not getting it. So hesitancy, uh, or which sometimes gets conflated with being, you know, anti-vaccine, which is, I would argue, slightly different. But these are all things that have happened with regards to vaccines we've long been familiar with. And current surveys indicate that the levels of mistrust or doubt about COVID-19 vaccines are going to be pretty substantial. They're going to be substantial overall, so across all sectors of the population, but obviously they're going to be even more pronounced when you talk about populations that have traditionally either been neglected um, during clinical trials in general vaccines and beyond, or directly harmed uh, in clinical research. And we're talking primarily of racial and socioeconomic minorities um, and 
these are precisely the communities that have been the most affected by COVID-19. So the, the picture is not looking um, very good. You know, once we get past the logistics uh, and the scarcity problems we've um, we've talked about because people just don't trust the ways these vaccines have been developed. And some of these reasons are historical and some of these reasons are um, newish. And one of the newish or new components, I, I, I think I can say this, is this idea of uh, misinformation, which in the field of vaccines has long existed. It's been documented, you know, centuries ago. Um, mm-hmm. It's got more announced in the 20th century uh, with some, you know, a study that was... Um, discredited and, and retracted. Um, so one of the things that has, um, you know, made this problem worse is that the advent of social media has made the circulation of vaccine-specific content much easier. And we know that a lot of this content um, made available online in general, but particularly um, through social media. When it comes to vaccines, it's inaccurate, a lot of it, a substantial portion of it. And it's inaccurate, um, sometimes on purpose, and it's called disinformation. So these are um, social media accounts uh, or uh, people behind uh, these accounts that have an interest in promoting inaccurate information about vaccines. So saying they're not safe, saying um, that there's some sort of deep state conspiracy behind um public health uh, authority support for vaccines, etc. And then there's uh, what we already had seen in the years leading up to the proliferation of, of social media, which is the gen, uh, a certain distrust of uh, vaccines, or I should say pockets of distrust um, in, in vaccines. Those have made their way uh, to uh, social media platforms where they are incredibly loud, which is one of the words used to characterize small numbers of people or groups that have a message that travels, you know, disproportionately uh, faster and to uh, large numbers of, of recipients. So that has aggravated uh, vaccine misinformation and disinformation, whether it's done on purpose or not, that has aggravated the debate on, on vaccines. Uh, and, and all of this is making for a very, very messy situation when we do have those vaccines available for the population, you know, in, in general. Wow. Well, there is no shortage of, of things to talk about when it comes to, to vaccines in general and in particular, um, the COVID-19 vaccine, but I know we're all anxiously awaiting it. Um, I mean, I guess not all, but I am for certain. And I'll just be here waiting for you to let me know, um, <laughs> which one and when, um, Anna. So thank you for your expertise and taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, sure. I'm, I'm very happy to uh, to do this, and, and I'll just add, I'm just a lowly law professor, so uh, I, I can talk about you know, regulatory and legal tools, um, but, you know, as with anything that's public health-related, um, the public health um, authorities are in the best position to advise. Um, they advise a number of uh, vaccine-specific entities, but the public at large on what they should be doing. And I dearly hope that people. I know this has been, you know, 2020 was a crazy year in many, in many ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's saying that socially or politically um, divisive has been, I hope, maxed out, but it has been really, really explored uh, throughout 2020. So I, I really hope that there's. Uh, a return to uh, you know to science and to some degree of trust um, in mm-hmm. public health institutions that can dispense that advice with regards to uh, 
vaccines, which I look forward to following the moment, you know, those vaccines are available uh, and that advice is uh, made available to all of us. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Anna. Sure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.